Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10? In just a few moments, we will be reading from this 10th chapter. In the Pew Bible, it would be page 10,006, 1006, if that's helpful to anyone, 1006. Tomorrow, Gary Boswell will be meeting with a gentleman in our community who is a potential buyer for the property. And this this buyer apparently is willing to pay more than the, the first buyer that we had. And um, it will take God's gracious hand to move upon that gentleman, but he's, he seems to be willing, but we don't want to take that for granted. And so tonight when I pray in just a moment, you'll know what I'm praying about, that God would bless that conversation that Gary has and that um, we will indeed make even more from our property than we otherwise would have been making. be a tremendous help. also want to remind you that Brandon Queen is preaching right now in Little India from James chapter 2, a message that he brought in the mentoring class. And then finally, I want us to be praying for Angela Lovins. She's very, very weak. She's in the hospital. Um, Some of us have been privileged to see her. She now weighs 71 pounds. She is on an IV, and uh, hopefully they're strengthening her and giving her some nutrition. So let me just pray about those three things. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of opening your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us supernaturally and infallibly and authoritatively everything we need to know. And we ask tonight for the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray for illumination. We pray that we might understand the true meaning of the passage that we consider. We pray that we might see what it should mean in our lives. And we pray that you would give us the grace to implement it and to work it out and to live according to that word. Lord, we pray that you would bless our sister Angela with her a condition being so weak, she's so dependent upon you. Uh, strengthen her soul, encourage her faith and her hope, and if it would please you, still restore her body. We pray especially that she might live uh, long enough to watch her daughter graduate from Heritage Christian School in just a month. Uh, we know, Lord, that you could keep your hand on her and she could live uh, to old age if it pleased you. But we we submit to your perfect and wise will and just ask that you would be very gracious lord uh, be with our brother gary as he talks to this gentleman in our community tomorrow we pray that you will give him favor and that you might put it on the heart of this man to be willing to buy the property for the suggested price so that we can build this building for your glory and and have great financial help from you Bless Brandon as he opens your word uh, to the Indian community. We pray again that men in that gathering will be uh, pierced by the word, that they will uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be converted, that there will be a strong nucleus of men, godly men in that assembly who could become the core and the foundation for a church plant. Now be with us again. Give us your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
I mentioned, I think, a couple of weeks ago that the book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ and the new covenant over everyone and everything. He's superior certainly over Aaron and all of the high priests, and the new covenant is superior over the old. It's superior, the blessings of it are superior to the tabernacle and even to the old covenant day of atonement. The book of Hebrews is about better and final. If you would remember those two words, better and final. All that was foreshadowed under the old covenant found its ultimate and final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Especially in making the true, perfect, and final atonement for sin. And in entering into the true and final Holy of Holies. And he did that as our forerunner. Now I know I asked you to turn to chapter 10, because that's where we're going to spend our time. And you may want to put a marker there, but just for, for a moment I want you to go back to chapter 6. Because I used the word forerunner. And I want you to see this again. We considered it briefly last week. I want you to notice with me verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. So when God desired, what a gracious thing for God to do, to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that would be us who are weak in faith, to show us what? The unchangeable character of his purpose. That will comfort us if we really are convinced that his purposes are certain because they're rooted in an unchangeable character. What did he do? He guaranteed it. Guaranteed what? His promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, a promise and an oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge. I wonder if you're in that phrase tonight. Are you a person who has fled for refuge in terms of the writer to the Hebrews? He's talking about running to God's provision for salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's a good way to describe the community of God. We're the people who have fled for refuge. Why did, he, why did he give this guarantee? So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Our hope takes us presently into the Holy of Holies and eventually into the very presence of God himself when eternity begins. But notice that place behind the curtain, that is to say, that special, intimate, glorious presence of God is, look at verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, we can go there, and we will be there. But we couldn't go there, and we could never end up there if it were not for our forerunner who passed through the heavens and entered into the Holy of Holies and tore the curtain in two. So, this is what I want to say to you by way of introducing this passage that we're looking at for the third and last time for now. God promised to us justification by grace through faith in a coming Redeemer. And so we have fled to this Redeemer. 
But in order that we in our weakness of faith might be convinced and have a strong encouragement, God has sworn an oath in addition to his promise and guaranteed that this promise is true. So now it's all been purchased. Now that Christ our high priest has offered for all time a single sacrifice. We'll come back to Hebrews 10. Uh, since I'm making reference to that language, you only have to look down to verse 12. When Christ had offered <clears throat> for all time, he doesn't have to do it over and over, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and that's us. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the done. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he starts in verse 19 of our passage, when he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, let us, let us. Since, since, let us, let us, let us. There are two duns. We have confidence to enter. That's settled. That's done. It's ours. We have a great priest over the house of God. That's settled. That's done. That belongs to us. And on the basis of those things which we have, on the basis of those things which have been done, the writer has some dues for us. He has three dues for us, which I called the, the lettuce garden of Hebrews. It's not the only place that the writer uses the expression let us, but it's the only place where he use it, uses it three times in a row in such close succession. Now, uh, tonight we're going to look, we've seen the first one, it's in verse uh, 22, let us draw near. The second one is in verse 23, let us hold fast. The third one we're going to look at tonight in verse 24 and in verse 25 is let us stir up. So try to get familiar with those words, maybe even memorize them. What am I to do in my Christian life among many other things? I'm to draw near, I'm to hold fast, and I'm to stir up. I should be drawing near to God through the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer and communion and worship of him continually and repeatedly because it's been purchased for me. I should be holding tightly my confession of hope revealed in the word of God, all that my hopes are built upon revealed in scripture that I am able to confess and verbalize and propositionalize. I should hold on to those things tightly. But I'm also supposed to be doing something in your life. And you're supposed to be doing something in my life, not so much as a pastor, but just as a fellow believer. We are told now in verse 24 that we are to be, to consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So this is sort of a social, Christian social 
um, exhortation and duty that we have. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that the, that the triad of, of the three Christian graces are found in our passage. And again, if we had time, I'd like to just pause and say, what do you think those, those three graces are? There's a trinity of graces that the Bible often puts together and speaks of. And they are faith, hope, and love. Remember how 1 Corinthians chapter 13 concludes, Now abides faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. In some regards, love is the greatest. In other regards, faith is the greatest, because there's no love where there's no faith. A faithless love is not a biblical love. But in, in regard to the burden that the Apostle Paul had at that time when he was writing that particular verse, he said that, that love was the greatest of the three. There's the triad. There's the trinity of graces, faith, hope, and love. Did you remember? In verse 22, we had faith. In verse 23, last week, we had hope. And tonight, there's a great emphasis in our passage upon love. Let me just put a little outline on the board here so that uh, this, is, this whole exercise of having the board was not for, for nothing. Uh, I, asked, I asked Tim, faithful deacon that he is, to uh, help us with this. Um, if we were to look at the big, the big outline, I guess you could say there are uh, some, some duns. And I know these, these words are too small for you to, to see, but at least you visualize what's going on up here. And there were two of, remember, the sense sense. And then there are the do's. And we're looking at those now. And the first one was draw near. The second one was hold fast. And the one we're looking at tonight, I'm calling stir up. Now, I'm going to come over here. And I'm just going to uh, forget about the A's and the Roman numerals, and I'm going to go back to uh, the Roman numerals just for this, this one. And, and last week I, I had a, I think I used an outline that was simple. It was what are we to do, how are we to do it, and why are we to do it. That's what I did with regard to let us hold fast. I could do the same thing tonight, but I'm going to only do two. I'm going to do what are we to do and how are we to do it. So let's just look at this. What, and in a minute we'll fill in the answer, and I'm going to put how, and I think you're going to see that there are two things that we are to do, and perhaps there are three things with regard to how. Now, um, let's take a look at that verse, and actually verse 24 and 25 a minute, and see if you see the what and the how, okay? If you had to outline this, and again, for the younger men, there's something here worth, uh, who, who have an interest in preaching and teaching, there's something worth observing. But, but all of you, I think, are capable of answering these questions. Look carefully at verse 24 and 25. And here's my first question. What is it that we are to do? This is the third do. This is the third lettuce. Well, the text reads, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How's that for an answer? What are we to do? We're to consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Really, if you just drop off and, there's the what. Stir up 
one another to love and good deeds. But a natural question would be, how? And I think the writer anticipates that. And so he says to us in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but, notice the not but, not this but that, not this but that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stir one another up to love and good deeds, but there's something I don't want you to do. But there's something I do want you to do. And when we look at the not, actually, if we understand it, we can turn it around and make a positive out of it. What is the not? Not forsaking or neglecting to meet together. I want you to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. And and would you have to be a rocket science to conclude that he means, and as you do this, you better keep getting together. You better do this together. Don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. But the contrast and the way he puts it, since he starts with negative, turns to a but. But let's look at both of them as a positive. We are to stir one another up to love and to good deeds, first of all, by making sure that we're spending time together. And secondly, by when we spend time together, what is it? Look at the next part of verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, as is the habit of some. Apparently, some of the Hebrew Christians were getting slack and careless about this wonderful means of grace that God has ordained where we help one another in our Christian lives by worshiping together and fellowshipping together. Some of them were slacking. And he's saying to his readers, don't do like some of those people. They're letting down in that area. Don't let down in that area. Don't neglect to meet together. That's one of the ways that we do this, stirring one another up. And the other way is, but encouraging one another. Meet together. Encourage one another. And then here's where I want you guys that are thinking carefully about how to analyze a text to to notice something. I thought, you know what I could do if I really wanted to just keep a parallel to last week, I could have a, a what, how, and a why again. And I could make the last phrase there. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's why you should do it. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Here's what you should do. Here's how to do it. Here's why you should do it. But, you know, that would just be developing an outline that had some symmetry to it and matched last week's outline. But when you come to that last expression, which is all the more as you see the day approaching, the all the more has to do with how. Here's how you should stir one another up to love and good deeds. Get together. Don't quit meeting together. And when you get together, encourage one another And as you get together to encourage one another, see to it that as time passes, you actually are doing this more and more because you know that history may be drawing to its end. At least you know that the day is approaching, the final day of judgment. So this still has to do with how, not what. And so I would call that doing it with greater determination. What are the three 
uh, ways that uh, we are to do what we're to do. What are we to do? We're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. How? By meeting together, by encouraging one another, and by doing this with an increasing intensity and determination. Now, I think that's the outline that comes out of the text, and I hope you will agree with me. Now, let's just look at these things then quickly and try to get some practical help from it. Now, when it comes to the what, what are we to do? I mean, I've said it about ten times now and quoting it. But I would suggest to you that in the what, there is sort of a long-term, what I might call an ultimate Wait a minute, I just spell ultimate, U-L-T-I-M-A-T-E. An ultimate sort of long-range target, and there is a more immediate. Now, look at the text again and ask yourself this question. What does he really want us to, what's the target? What's the goal? What is it we're supposed to do now? Why is it we're supposed to do this? What are we really trying to achieve? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. There it is. The real target, the the object that we're trying to achieve is stirring each other up. That's the ultimate goal, to stir each other up. To what? To two things. To love and to good deeds. Let me just comment that I think the order there is intentional, of course, because as I hinted at, good deeds should flow out of love. And if good deeds don't flow out of love, then John, the apostle, is willing to ask us if that's love at all. Love is the cause. Good deeds are the effect. So they're, in one sense, they're inseparable, but our goal is to stir one another up. Now, this word stir is a helpful word because it really means to incite. It means to stimulate. That's how the NIV translates it, stimulate one another. It means to motivate. The King James translation used the more antiquated word to provoke one another, to, to be sure that you are a a source of provocation, but that carries a little different baggage with most of us now, so I think it's helpful to use the expression to stir up, to incite, to stimulate, to motivate. To motivate people to what? To love. To love in such a way as to show kindness in, in acts of kindness to one another. But what I, what I want to say to you is that this is, this is a two-way street. You see that? Stir up one another. So that, that doesn't mean you're just to stir up other people. It means other people are to be stirring you up. This is a mutual responsibility. So isn't it obvious as we just look at the text and think about it that love in our Christian lives is obviously something that needs stirring up. I mean, you meditate on the text and you sit and you think about a see. Let us hold fat or let us stir up one another to love and good deeds. And you pray for light and you ask God to help you as you meditate on it. And 
And you probably think for a, a minute or two or maybe not even that long and say, you know what? It must be that love in my life and in the life of my brothers and sisters has some need to be stirred up. Why would he tell us to stir it up if it doesn't need stirring up? So that's an obvious observation and conclusion to draw. The Christian life, and particularly the life of love, always needs to be stirred up. But what I want you also to notice is that we are to love one another so much that we actually care about the grace of love in someone else. If I were writing this letter to the Hebrew Christians, I would have said, be sure that you get on your knees and get before God and study the scriptures and pray hard and stir your love up and a love that will go into good deeds. Stir that stuff up in you. And that would be, in one sense, very sensible, wouldn't it? And I think the Bible does tell us to do that in other places. But when's the last time you actually stopped and reflected that it's your responsibility to stir up the love of other people? And now answer that question. I want you to think about this. This passage is teaching us that we are to love one another so much that we care about the other person's love. Not for us, but for God and for others. It's not a selfish pursuit. I want to stir up your love for me. I want to stir up your love for God and your neighbor and for your fellow believer. Do you care about the grace of love in other Christians' lives? Honestly, when is the last time you literally spent some time trying to figure out how you could help someone else with their love and to stir them up to love and good deeds? I'm not good at stirring up my own love, and neither are you. And we need other people to help us stir up our own love, and they need us to help them stir up their love. This is a mutual responsibility. And as I've already indicated, when we find that love stirred up, it, it must go into some kind of tangible demonstration in terms of deeds. You know, when Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, here's how he put it. By the way, listen to the triad. I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. Remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith, faith works, and your labor of love, love labors, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the triad. The labor of love. Love labors. And you do remember, surely... How the Apostle John put it in his little epistle. Again, I'm just going to read this to save time. But if you want to make note of it, it's chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. God so loved the world that he gave. Love is an active grace. We are to stir it up in one another. And if it is stirred up in us or in one another, it must go into action. It must demonstrate itself 
in good deeds. So that's the immediate, that's the goal, isn't it? We're, so you look at the text, what is it I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to stir up. Uh, we're supposed to stir up one another, back to Hebrews 10, to love and good deeds. Um, but how do you get there? How do you get there? It's almost as if the apostle said, oh, by the way, just a little problem here. You can't do this without some serious thought. So even though in the text the order is first consider and the object of what we're to consider is second, I wanted to treat it this way because I want you to realize that you can't stir anyone else's love up unless you stop and give careful thought and attention and strategic planning. You think that word considers there just accidentally? Actually, the duty is first to consider. You can't do it well if you don't think about it. And that's a, that's a good word. The word really means give concentrated thought to this. Direct your mind toward this subject. Reflect upon this subject. Focus your mental energies on the needs of other people. And surely, we don't want to just use our brains. We want, to, we want to think with a holy imagination, and we want to say, God, would you help me to think? I can pick out anybody. I can pick out Daryl. I can pick out John. I can pick out Camilla. I can just pick out any person, and so can you. And I'll tell you what, I'll pick one out right now who's, I don't think she's here tonight. Catherine Dennis isn't in our presence. Are you? Okay. I think about her a lot lately. Not enough. Get your church directory out and start with A and think about David and Sandy App. After a while, you're going to get to the D's and you're going to see Catherine. And you think about her. I would like to stir her up. She must have a difficult life. She lost her husband under crushing circumstances, scary circumstances, and is going through life as a single mom. She's got two children to raise on her own. She's barely making it financially. She's working hard. She gets discouraged. I wonder how I could be an instrument of stirring love up in her heart, even to the place where she might get focused on, and I don't mean to imply at all that I don't think she's focused on other people because she is, but when you're in destitute circumstances, sometimes the best thing in the world is to get your whole life focused on helping other people. I just pull her out. You can pull out Anybody in our church, there isn't a single person in this sanctuary tonight who doesn't need his or her love for God and love for one another stirred up in such a way that it would manifest itself in deeds. No one. But the point is you've got to think about it. You have to consider it. You have to deliberately let your mind mull on this subject. And that's where the apostle begins, or not the apostle. I keep calling him the apostle. I don't know if he was apostle or not. 
I'm training myself to say the writer. That's where the writer to the Hebrews begins. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good deeds. So that's all I want to say about the what. There is an immediate goal, which is to consider, and there's an ultimate goal. And very quickly, I want to move on now to how we're to do this. And I, I put on the board that there were, there were three things that we need to do. Maybe I should just fill this out a little bit. Ultimately, stir up. And immediately consider. Now, what is the uh, first way by which we are to carry out this duty of stirring up one another? The first one is spending time together. Or maybe I should just put it more in the language of the text. He says, do not neglect getting together. Do not, let me read it exactly. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet one another, with one another. Maybe, I think I'm going to put that differently. Because this is, this is biblical language. By meeting together. Now, what does the apostle or the writer, I should say, have in mind when he says meeting together? Well, we, of course, the first thing we think of is what we're doing tonight. And that's legitimate because God wills that his covenant people meet together to worship him, particularly on his Lord's day, on his day. And we meet together to worship and we meet together to be taught like I'm trying to do tonight. And we were helped by our pastor this morning. We come before God together and we pray together. And that's surely where we should start. But what I want to stress to you without in any way meaning to undermine the significance of this is that is not where we should stop. And the reason why I say that is because of the second thing. We are not to neglect meeting together, which is a negative way of saying we are to continue being sure that we meet together. And then what does it say? Because this is going to be B under how. It says in verse 25, but encouraging one another. So how do we do this? We make sure we meet together and we find ways to encourage I'll put it this way, encouraging one another. And the key word is encouraging. And some of you know that the Greek word for encouraging can also be translated exhorting. And sometimes it should be exhorting and other times it's encouraging. A good exhortation should be encouraging. It depends on the situation. If there's outright sin involved, you may have to use the word or the approach of exhortation. Brother, what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. You shouldn't be doing it. 
I'm disappointed with you. I'm praying for you. I love you. I want to help you. Don't do that. I don't know if you'd really call that an encouragement, but you might go to another brother and say, Hey, brother, I've been thinking about something that I think would really help you in your, in your family. Something that God has blessed in our home. I just want you to know I've been praying for you this week. I know you're facing some tough times. Got a passage of scripture that I think will help you. Would you call that an exhortation or would you call it an encouragement? It's the same word, though. It depends. So sometimes we exhort, sometimes we encourage. But the point is, we stir one another up to love and good deeds by meeting together and finding venues to encourage one another. So here's my question. If encouraging one another and meeting together starts with corporate worship but doesn't stop there, how should we work this out? How much encouraging one another has happened so far today in our corporate gathering? And we, we've all been encouraged. We encouraged by Pastor Keith's sermon this morning. But he encouraged us. I'm asking a different question. Did any of you encourage one another? Did any of you exhort one another today? Maybe some of you say, yeah, I did. It was after the service. It was out there in the lobby. It was down the hall. It was in the parking lot just for you. Hope so. That's great. That does sometimes happen, and it should happen. And then there is a sense in which corporately we can do this because we're told by the Paul in his letter to the Colossians that we're to uh, exhort one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing, we don't think of that too often, but especially those songs that have to do with where we're calling ourselves together to faithfulness to God, we literally actually should look at one another while we're singing. We should do that. But when it's directed to God, we don't want to be looking around at one another because we're, we're praising God, we're worshiping God, we're petitioning God. But when some of our songs enable us to challenge ourselves together as a congregation, we we should look at one another. That's the only way that I know of that we can actually do it in a corporate worship service. But the Apostle Paul didn't say, during your worship gatherings, do this. He, he is, the stress is not on the nature of the service. The stress is on getting together meeting together and encouraging one another. So somehow, if our encouragement has to do with our meeting together, we're going to have to figure out ways to do this either at the worship service or in other ways during the week. And, of course, one wonderful way is to have friends into our homes and to uh, eat with each other and enjoy each other and talk and cultivate relationships, and that's a beautiful way, and that does work. And I think to some level it, it's being achieved at Heritage, but probably not to the level and degree that it ought. Some of it happens spontaneous, but this is a command, folks. This doesn't say sit around and see if it happens. Pray to God and hope that somehow you'll find yourself in a situation where a brother or a sister encouraged you and hope that before 2011 is over, you encourage someone else that you never intended to, but something just happened. No, do this. This is a duty. It's a privileged duty. 
We need to see ourselves as responsible for, before God for stirring one another up to love and to good deeds, and we do it by getting together, by meeting together, yes, in corporate worship, but no, not only corporate worship, and finding ways after serious thought and prayer to stir each other up. And you know that's one of the reasons why we've put a new emphasis on care groups, and I don't want to beat this thing like a dead horse, and I hope that you're not feeling that, but... We haven't, I don't think we've grasped it. I don't think some of you have seen what the purpose. I think some of you just say, you know, they're, they're fine. That's what people like. They're fine. Would you just understand, please, that your pastors have something in mind? You know what we have in mind? Cultivating relationships. That's why we'd like to eat together if we can, talk, open our hearts. Sometimes the men and women separate during those groups so that the men can say, hey, guys, I'm being like a jerk. In my home, you can believe the way I'm treating my kids and my wife. Would you guys pray for me? You think a man's going to say that in the whole group? No. You think he's going to say it on a Wednesday, typical Wednesday night prayer meeting? No. You think he's going to say it here at 5 o'clock? No. So we're trying to cultivate venues where people can be more open with one another. We learn one another. We start getting burdened for one another, and we care for one another. But the, the, the care groups are not an end in themselves. They're just a means to, to another end. The other end that we hope for is where men will say, you know what, I've really enjoyed getting to know you in this last year, and I respect you, and I see some strengths in you that I don't have. Could we meet and have lunch? I want to talk to you about how to do family worship. And maybe even a man would have enough humility and guts to meet with his brother and say, brother, I tremble to tell you this, but I'm addicted to pornography. And I need a faithful friend who will hold me accountable and meet with me. Or sisters getting together and talking about the struggles that they're having, being the kind of wife or mother they need to be, or problems they're having with their tongue, or whatever else. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the cultivation of relationships where people will be able to do this passage because it's hard to do just at church. That's all I'm saying. It's hard to do just at church. We want you to participate in this. We don't, we don't want you to see it as something sort of optional. If you can find a better way to obey Hebrews 10, then please let us know. Maybe we can make that a pattern for people. But please don't boycott such a valuable means of grace. It's, it's created by us to help. Well, i got to really wrap this up, so let me just... Um, I'm just going to say this, that this is what the early church did. We don't have time to turn to Acts 2.46, but what's interesting is that this church, this body of believers that was so blessed of the Holy Spirit, we're told they, they met together in the temple and from house to house, taking their meals with gladness. Those house to houses weren't house churches. Those are Christians getting together because they loved each other and cultivating relationships. Corporate worship smaller fellowships it's it's very biblical but then i need to say a word about the third way and i'll just put this up here and try to wrap it i'm going to put with increasing With increasing determination, abbreviated. Do you see the last part of verse 25? It says, and all the more. 
all the more. What's that imply to you? That this should be growing. This should be increasing. This should be intensifying. All the more as you see the day drawing near. And obviously the day there, we believe, refers to the day of the Lord or the second coming of our Savior. We need, in light of that coming, to stir each other up because the days are evil and we want to be ready for his return. We don't want to be living carelessly. In fact, this verse is really another verse about perseverance. This whole section is about perseverance. Look at verse 26. We can't go into this now because he's developing his argument further. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's saying there is a danger of apostasy. True Christians won't apostatize, but true Christians don't apostatize because they fear apostasy and they draw near to God and they hold fast to their confession and they get together with one another and stir each other up. That's why they persevere. No wonder he said back in chapter 3 and verse 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. It's an exhortation to persevere. So this is a means of grace. This is a means of persevering grace, getting together. When's the last time you thought about the importance of getting together to stir up someone's love? So love and good deeds as, as you being instrumental as a means of grace in their perseverance. Am I making something up? Am I just seeing something here that's not really here, or is it there? It's there. That's why it's important for God's people to work hard at getting together and getting to know one another and caring for one another at a deeper level. So I conclude with this. Doesn't honesty require us to admit Dear brothers and sisters, that we we need this exhortation. I need this exhortation. When is the last time you actually sat down and intentionally and deliberately and strategically and prayerfully considered how you could stir up the love and good deeds of another Christian? Let me intensify that question. If, If you had to, to die tonight, and be executed for not having done it. Now, I didn't say when's the last time you stirred someone up. I'm saying when is the last time you sat down and considered, considered how to stir someone up. I'm going to give you credit for doing the former to some degree, as I hope we all have some credit. This text isn't asking us if we've accidentally been instrumental in anyone's life. This text is demanding that we purposely, proactively, deliberately plan on this. So my question is, and it makes it more penetrating to my conscience, when's the last time you sat down and deliberately, prayerfully thought and considered how you could do this in someone's life? If you didn't, and if you, if you have to say, I haven't done it in the last week, you die, would you be alive for the last month? 
Dear brothers and sisters, this is something we're supposed to do. Don't take that word consider and throw it out of the text. It's in the text. You can't do what you're supposed to do well without considering. You see how central Christ is to this whole passage. Here I do wish I could spend more time, but I must not. It's not fair to you. But you see, all three lettuce are revolving around Christ. He's the one that laid the ground, grounds and foundation for all of these dues by what he has done. Who do we draw near to? God. How? By the blood of Jesus. What do we hold fast? The confession of our hope. What is it about? It's about what Christ has done and will yet do for us. What is it we're supposed to stir people up to? To love and good deeds. And why should we do this with greater and greater intensity and determination? Because the day, the day, the day is drawing near. The day of what? The day of our Savior. The day of his return. And to the extent that we have failed to do all three of these miserably and repeatedly, isn't it wonderful that there is a perfect atonement that he purchased for us, that he is in the Holy of Holies for us, leading for us, and we have acceptance with God even in our failures. We have acceptance with God because of what he has done for us. My, my little series is over. Will you remember the lettuce garden of Hebrews? Will you get those three phrases down? And if you want to, you can make it a let me. And there goes the vegetable. Let me draw near. Let me hold fast. Let me stir up. That's what we want, a congregation of saints who are just continually in the presence of God, holding firmly to their confession of hope, but on the horizontal level, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of this passage. Thank you for telling us what you want us to do now on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Help us to be what we are. Help us to do what you have provided. And we pray that since we focus tonight on this matter of stirring one another up to love and good deeds, that you will help us to to love one another so much that we'll think about how we can help one another love better. So bless us by applying this word to our hearts and consciences and bringing about change. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.